0: Welcome to Pomegranate Health, a podcast about the culture of medicine. I'm Mick Cavazzini for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Today I'm going to build on the previous two episodes, on what COVID-19 has taught us about global public health strategy. We ended the last story with a recording from the Australian Prime Minister telling the United Nations that it was a moral responsibility for a successful vaccine to be shared far and wide. Australia is a signatory to the COVAX facility, which I described in the last episode as a betting pool. If any one of the 15 vaccine candidates within its portfolio is successful, it would be distributed to all 172 participating countries. Both high and low income countries would be permitted to vaccinate 3% of the population in successive rounds until a target of 20% was reached for all. COVAX does then allow for funding nations to bump their vaccination rate up to 50%, but not to jump the queue. However, you might recall the concern expressed by Dr. Deborah Gleeson of La Trobe University about rich countries signing deals directly with the same vaccine manufacturers. She argued that these bilateral deals would undermine the ability of COVAX to access supplies for more equitable distribution. As I was putting the final touches on this podcast, it was announced that Australia had entered into advanced market commitments with Pfizer and Novavax, That's on top of the arrangement made in August to produce the Oxford-AstraZeneca candidate in Australian laboratories. The Novavax, AstraZeneca and the homegrown Uni of Queensland vaccines all feature in the COVAX stables, but Australia has secured 125 million doses of these up front, for our population of 25 million. I contacted the Department of Health to ask whether Australia was expecting priority treatment, or whether we'd allow the objectives of COVAX to be met first. Here is their response. These advance purchase arrangements operate separately from Australia's participation in the Gavi COVAX facility. Australia's participation in the COVAX facility is an important insurance policy to ensure that Australians have access to a wider range of potential vaccine candidates in addition to the doses we have secured through our advance purchase arrangements. End quote. I've not come across any formal response to these negotiations from Gavi, or a calculus of their specific impact on global vaccine supply. But in the last podcast it was proposed that a me-first attitude from rich countries might not be the most pragmatic approach towards SARS-CoV-2 in epidemiological terms. In fact, there's a modelling study showing just that from Northeastern University Massachusetts. In its cooperative scenario, researchers distributed 3 billion doses of a hypothetical vaccine to all countries as a proportion of population. In a second, uncooperative scenario, only a billion doses were shared out in this way, with the remaining 2 billion going to high-income countries. The researchers fed real-life prevalence numbers from March 16th into the model, and compared transmission and mortality through to September 1st. The cooperative scenario averted about 60% of deaths over this period, while the me-first approach was only half as successful. Later in this podcast, we'll hear some more about lessons learned and not learned from pandemic modelling in past years, and how Australia could benefit from an independent centre for disease control. But before we do, let's go back to the theme about the intellectual property rules that govern pharmaceutical markets. The laws on 20-year patents that protect new drug molecules were determined in the 1995 TRIPS agreement of the World Trade Organisation. But these protections present major hurdles to manufacturers of generic pharmaceuticals, and monopoly pricing puts the name-brand drugs out of reach for many people in low- and middle-income countries. On top of that, diseases centred in these regions are often neglected by originator firms entirely, because there's just not enough money to be made. We heard how partnerships like COVAX, the Global Fund, and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation are designed to address such market failures. But in a 2012 article for the journal Global Public Health, Dr Owen Williams expressed some caveats about these pooled procurement mechanisms. The University of Leeds academic says that they reinforce the existing oligopoly rather than stimulate competition. The, the,
1: the thing is, look, the, the patent system is, is a systemic. It's, it's the, the major system in place globally that provides the conditions for innovation. Um, I don't think it's a good system, Uh, but it's what we've got in place. I mean, COVAX is ostensibly a a good initiative, uh, and I think it would be sensible for most countries to belong to it. All of the different partnerships and approaches, CEPIs and uh, and the product development partnerships, what they're there to do is circumvent the problems, that the multiple problems that are endemic to drug markets and vaccine Mm -hmm. markets. And they circumvent it, but they're not systemic. They're partial interventions. Um, and we're constantly reliant, therefore, on these rather ad hoc, uh, very good, very well-meaning, and sometimes very successful, these ad hoc attempts to band-aid the innovation system. It's, it's a band-aid. And there's a fundamental question to you, maybe Peter will speak to this, is whether drug
0: innovation should rest within the market let alone the patent system. They're, they're market solutions to, to market failures, but... Yes. Well, like, and, but, but beneath it, there is a, a moral failure that... Yeah, there's a moral failure addressed.
1: that lurks within it. But they're not market They are market solutions. They're political, economic solutions because they involve states and government money.
0: As an illustration of these tensions, just look at the COVID technology access pool which was launched alongside COVAX in May. It was put forward by Costa Rica and the WHO as a place to share patents, technology and research findings to speed up collaborative efforts against the coronavirus. But Big Pharma was not impressed. The CEO of Pfizer described this patent pool as nonsense, given that the risk that we are taking is billions of dollars. And the chief executive of AstraZeneca had this response. I think IP is a fundamental part of our industry, and if you don't protect IP, then essentially there is no incentive for anybody to innovate." Quote. There's this embedded assumption, not just in pharma but in every industry, that innovation occurs thanks only to the vim and vigour of the private sector. We lionise the plucky entrepreneur, the big fish like Elon Musk and Richard Branson, who succeed in the competitive waters of the free market. The New York Times is in favor of capitalism because it has been the greatest anti-poverty program and engine of progress that we've seen, said opinion editor David Bennett to his staff. Columnist David L. Friedman went even further to describe America as the greatest engine of innovation that has ever existed, thanks to a non-corrupt bureaucracy and financial markets and a venture capital system that are unrivaled at taking new ideas and turning them into global products. I suppose I didn't question this maxim too much, until I attended a lecture last year where Mariana Matsukato presented her book titled The Entrepreneurial State. She's a professor in the economics of innovation and public value at University College London, and one of those rock star academics asked to give TED lectures and advise the EU. I'll link to some of her writing in the show notes, including The People's Prescription Policy Report, and another article titled Drug Companies Will Make a Killing from Coronavirus. Matsukato says that brilliant as Steve Jobs might have been, the iPhone didn't have an immaculate conception. The internet that makes it a smartphone began as a network of computers at the US Department of Defence. They also came up with GPS, while research into the touchscreen was funded by the National Science Foundation and the CIA. And Wi-Fi, now used on 5 billion devices globally? That was conceived by two Australian electrical engineers working at the CSIRO and Macquarie University. In all these technologies, the state has been the early investor, putting public money in where there is least guarantee of a successful outcome. And the same, of course, is true of drug research. In the USA, the National Institutes of Health pour $40 billion a year into fundamental research. Of the 210 new drugs approved by the FDA between 2010 and 2016, every single one can be linked to public funding. Here's Owen Williams to carry this idea further. And after a few minutes, you'll also hear from Associate Professor and RSCP Fellow Peter Hill from the University of Queensland.
1: The role of core uh, states, core Western states, uh, in terms of financing both basic research but also applied research, is enormous, is enormous. Um, life sciences broadly are basically the product of state investment. Uh, government labs, universities... NIH funding, European mm. framework program in, in Australian universities. It's the same, same picture. Yeah, um, So all our tax dollars uh, are busily generating these systems, uh, these R&D systems, these technologies, and then along come the firm and they patent them or run, they run the phase three trials and phase mm. four and, and so on and so forth. They clear up the regulatory hurdles. They're very good at doing these things. They have the know-how and the expertise to do these things, in, in pharmaceuticals especially. And, uh, you know, we then pay twice because mm. then we have to buy them.
0: Yeah, there was a figure in Matsukata's article in the New York Times that since the 2003 SARS outbreak the NIH has spent nearly $700 million of taxpayer money on coronavirus research. Yeah. And and even the antiviral remdesivir, um, which, as we said at the beginning, improves recovery times for people with COVID, that was developed from research on MERS, uh, on the MERS coronavirus at the University of Alabama. $70 million. That's what the NIH put into uh, that drug. Um, and now it's patented exclusively by Gilead Sciences. Yes, Gilead are great at doing
1: this. The other thing that they're really good at doing is buying up companies, smaller companies, that have, like, the uh, DAC for hepatitis C. They didn't generate that, Gilead. They bought the company that had done it. Um, very quickly, in 2012, as soon as the results were, bu- were in, they bought mm. the company. Just, just from the top of my head, it's around $8 billion they're now on 50 billion profits. That's good business without any R&D effort whatsoever.
0: Well, the, in fact, the, 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 the trend in recent years has actually been for large pharmaceutical companies to move away from the lab bench, and as you say, but just buy licences or companies altogether. Um, in a 2019 study, researchers at Harvard Medical School found that Johnson & Johnson had only discovered two of its 18 top-selling drugs in-house, and for Pfizer, it was 10 from 44. Yeah. So this really debunks the idea that all the existing patent protections are stimulating great innovation from these big companies. Yeah, they, um,
1: s- they, s- they sit on top of a pyramid. Um, and it's not just a pyramid of firms. It's a pyramid of government labs, of university labs. Um, they're apex predators. I mean, this is the absurdity now. You've got the NIH and Moderna arguing about their proprietary rights, their respective proprietary rights to the Moderna candidate. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The government's funded that development, Um, so the NIH wants a stake in the profits. So you've got a government agency starting to talk about intellectual property. Um, The upshot is, I mean, it doesn't matter what arrangements those two entities come to. The fact is, is that both the U.S. government and Moderna, will continue to support the patent system, yeah, yeah. and the UK will do exactly the same thing
0: with the Oxford candidate and AstraZeneca. And they, they as, as in the example of the COVID technology access pool, their threats to walk away from research if if intellectual property is wound back—that uh, that's a hollow threat given how conservative they already are in terms of.
2: Base, basic research. I, I think you're right, and yet um, is, there a, is there an appetite within government to actually make up that gap? And Part of it, I think, is how we conceptualise the risk of investment in the latter part of pharmaceutical development. the The funding of the pure science is in a sense, more abstract, the successful outcomes are, you know, the the beginning of the you know phase two, phase three trials, um, and there's a sense in which that can be justified relatively easy to a public, but to take punts on on returns that may give you a five percent return on your investment um, for for governments, the you know there is a great disincentive. Uh, if if the negative risks of the risks of loss are high for where we concentrate our funds I mean what would be interesting is to look at countries like China where you know those latter stages of development are now linked intrinsically to the state where where the divides, I'm not suggesting that there's not a degree of capitalisation functioning mm-hmm. within that, but where there is a complicity, um, uh, because you know that that's that's the one place where a different kind of model might be might be currently operating. Um,
1: yeah, I think uh, Peter's right there. In, 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 but the other thing, you know, this the, there's this holy cow syndrome as well with patents. Everybody thinks that somehow COVID is going to prove exceptional. And just because we we, we need to produce this at huge volumes, we need six or seven billion doses, you know, maybe times two every year. So it's going to have to be licensed. Yes, that's all true. But are they going to give up those patent claims and proprietary rights? Now, my cynical answer is no, that's not going to happen. You know, there's a sense of uh, the liminal and the tipping point about COVID Um, And if you give your back into uh, the Costa Rica plan, um, how do you get out of that in the future? You know, how do you justify when the next pandemic or the next killer disease uh, occurs? How do you say we're not doing that again? Um, There's no going back. And I think that there's so much invested in this patent system and in this oligopoly um, that, that, that... you know, the, 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 to defect the, the from it is uh, is almost unthinkable.
0: The, this trope of the the plucky and in innovative private sector is always paired with the idea that government spending is, is by contrast, boring and wasteful and stifling. Um, a good example was um, British Prime Minister David Cameron announcing in 2001 that he was taking on the enemies of enterprise and pointing his finger at civil servants. And But it's funny that actually... Um, uh, again research from professor Mazucato and her collaborator uh, William Ladzonik, showed that between t- 2007 and 2016 the top listed 19 pharmaceutical companies spent almost 300 billion US dollars buying back their own shares just to boost stock prices Pfizer alone dropped 139 billion dollars down this well in 2011 so what it spent on paying out dividends and share buybacks was almost equivalent to its total R&D expenditure so that sort of reframes who the enemies of enterprise are or the, 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 motiva- the perverse motivations of the financialized system that they work in.
1: Mm,
0: quite. And then, you know, there's also research out there about their marketing
1: spend. Oh, right. um, mm, yeah. You know, especially in, especially in the US, you know, um, some projections by admittedly very hostile cr- critics of pharma is the marketing spend is bigger than the R&D spend, Um, No, I don't think that's true. But you add a substantial marketing budget uh, and a routine kind of glad-handing of the medical profession, you know, golfing holidays, conferences, um, mugs and so on, and uh, all of that circus, you know, um, and all of this is peripheral to R&D and science. Um, It's clear that there's a a hugely, uh, in scientific terms, wasteful kind of circus surrounding uh, pharmaceutical companies and markets,
0: and, and so, so what's the the solution? In, in in your recent editorial with Susan Sell, you described intellectual property as a fictitious commodity conjured up by financialised capitalism. What, what do you yeah what, what do you mean by that, and what's the alternative to it? Fictitious commodities is something that the political economist Polanyi
1: came up with to describe how capitalism, late capitalism, makes money out of commodities that aren't really real. So derivatives. um, um, Patents are a part of that. They're a legal state construct, and they guarantee profits from monopoly rights legally. Um, Now, we can choose politically and legally to dilute them, or we can choose to widen the basis of exceptions, or we can just get rid of them. Now, my preference here in, in, in terms of being a bit more philosophical and radical is this is a failing innovation system, clearly, um,
0: in terms of health. But TRIPS doesn't just protect pharmaceutical patents; it also protects um, copyright on books and music. And uh, that's correct. You know, without being without being facetious here, do you yeah do you make a distinction though between the intellectual property uh, on drug research and the copyright that an artist has on their work? I mean, we're we're rightly outraged when you know big fashion labels copy designs from ind- independent designers. So so here it's well, I'm not Small
1: really, but um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I think you know, if of all the family of, of intellectual property, I think co- copyright is, is probably the most defensible. Um, so there uh, is a distinction. There's a the... yeah. I mean, you don't want to write your book for ten years, write your your first novel, and then you know, some somebody is pumping it out on a press in Brisbane and, and you, you get nothing back from that effort. Now, that's clearly uh, a different case than than, than Pfizer uh, buying up a ferment, which has a promising ovarian cancer treatment.
0: Uh, but uh, in intellectually, what's the difference? I mean, you could... You're, uh, intellectually, I the, diff- I th- the difference is that the drug is a public good, but... I think the question you are asking, really underlying
1: this, is, is if we don't have patents, how do we innovate? Essentially. But, you know... That's a different set of circumstances from generating a system that is skewing drug production. So patent thickets, neglected and missing markets in health, they're all skewing the innovation system. So that they, it's not working. If you've got a neglected disease or rare or orphan disease, the patent system and the current innovation system is not working for you. If you're in a country where Ebola is endemic, the patent system's not working for you and hasn't worked hmm. for you. If you ha- Historically, if you had
0: a coronavirus, it hasn't worked for you, which is why we're in the hole that we're in. There's a similar uh, example about coronavirus in an article by journalist Vanessa B., and I guess she wears her heart on her sleeve because the essay is titled, Would We Already Have a COVID-19 Vaccine Under Socialism? Yeah, I've read it. Yeah. She points, yeah, she interviews this uh, guy from the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development that had been working on a SARS vaccine for years and just needed another $3 million to take it to clinical trials. In February, so after COVID had already broken out, he approached a number of investors telling them that it could provide a head start on COVID-19. But yeah. the response was, we're waiting to see if it, this will be a seasonal thing. It's this, this we'll the same
1: keep- story at the University of Queensland. You know, they, were, they, they, they had worked on a SARS vaccine, a coronavirus vaccine,
2: mm-hmm. only
0: to have the money pulled. Just a quick correction here. It was a research group at Flinders University that in 2010 had funding from the US National Institutes of Health discontinued. They now have approval for phase two trials of a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, but are still looking for the necessary funding. Um,
1: you know, it's you know, it's not. This is ju- isn't just market failure, is it? Mm. The whole story is p- political uh, and market failure. You know, it's it's it, just blaming these uh, pharmaceutical corporations is clearly insufficient.
0: Mm. And I guess actually that brings to mind when I was pressing you on the difference between intellectual property of you know, medicines versus books and so on. The difference here is that the penalty for not having acted on that perhaps speculative research and development is now in the trillions of dollars. Yes. On, top of the, on top of the human cost. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a famous hockey
1: stick curve, um, inverse hockey stick, about preventative health mm-hmm. Is that there's an initial uh, cost spike as you invest to eliminate or to vaccinate or prevent or whatever your bag is. And then the long handle of the hockey stick trails away. So costs go down because of that initial investment. So a, bur- a disease burden maps onto it. That's public health. You know, Australia dodged a bullet with, with COVID. Public health was gutted in 2012. Absolutely gutted. The fact that we got away with this is just remarkable. The UK did the same. Cut public health to ribbons. Um, and you know all of this vaccine circus is one thing, but there's other forms of prevention as well. Yes. Yeah. And we're not, we haven't invested in them. We've left it all to the market. Um, so what do we do to introduce both pull and push mechanisms to secure new systems of innovation? Well, we, we've, the, the, the literature has been there for a long time. We need, to be, we need to increase the amount of activity that goes on in the public domain. Let's also think about how we reward innovation undertaken by market means.
0: So do you think it requires more than just reducing the TRIPS protections from 20 years to, to 5 or 10 years? Well, like that'd it, be, that would be a good start. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a good start. So you could imagine that the IP starts with the government and as the early investor, and then they might grant licenses out to s- manufacturers based on their you know, targeted gold we're going to yeah. provide.
1: Well, that would be the public route. The market route, you, you, what, in the market route, what you need to do is de-link innovation from the eventual price. So there's all sorts of mechanisms you, you can introduce for that. Prize funds... Health impact funds, you know, does this does your drug work? How many people does it serve? Let's, yeah. let's
0: calibrate the reward according to its health impact. And some countries have stepped up. In in Germany, um, the cancer drug imatinib costs about 60% of what it does in the US. Uh, and they have a law, the, the the Act on the Reform of Market for Medical Products, or if you prefer, Arzneimittelmarkt, Neurodnunggegetz. That's what I prefer. (laughs) Which requires that new drugs be priced on their efficacy relative to existing ones. So that where no additional benefit is found, companies can't charge any additional price. And even where the new drug is better, the extra costs are negotiated with what the public and private insurers are prepared to cover, such that the patient is no worse off.
1: And there's, there's all sorts of stuff going on now. You know, the Italian move is fantastic. Transparency from back brass tax. where are your sources of money how has it been financed and what does that cost you to get this drug out of the factory door mm. uh, and you be transparent about it okay let's work out a deal where that's cost you 500,000 Australian dollars or a billion Australian dollars we, your reward for that is, is, is a multiple of five you know off you go off you go and you're not allowed any secondary patent of that and that patent only covers you for high income countries you know in some ways the game despite their influence you know they are under they're under the cosh presently and it's not just covid at the same time there's downward cost pressures in health
0: you you edited a special issue of the review of international political economy in which there was a great article by professors Shadland, Sumpart, and Kapczynski, who um, they're all professors in the law and economics of health, and they they do make the point that the ratio of R and D costs to returns is higher in the pharma industry than in most other industries. Um, for a start, it's a lot of work to get translational research into clinical settings, and even then, it's expensive to run trials. I was told at the Glaxo Labs in the UK that it's only that only one in twenty candidates ever makes it to the market. So you you wouldn't argue with any of these premises, would you? Uh, not particularly. I mean, the attrition for all, as you
1: say, the attrition for vaccines and drugs is is really high. Uh, drug production is costly. Nobody challenges that. It's an extraordinarily costly process
0: and risky process. But I, the co- the costs are routinely uh, exaggerated. Well, the I read about imatinib in a in an editorial in the journal Blood by the Experts in Chronic Myeloid Leukemia Consensus Group. Um, and they wrote that the, the total cost for bringing a new cancer drug to market is at most a billion US dollars, and in some cases may even be a tenth of that. Mm. Um, whereas in 2012 alone, Imatinib brought um, $4.7 billion to Novartis, which accounted for 10% of its revenue. So that sort of puts, puts paid to the idea that companies need 20 years' patents. Yeah. And, and then Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I don't think we need to worry
1: about big pharma. Mm. Uh, taking a hit. Look, the, bi- the, billion, the billion dollar is a very contested figure. Yeah? Now, these firms are hardly ever out of the top 20 Fortune 500 companies. And that, that's quite remarkable. And I think some element of sense and reality um, in, in an area which, which is ostensibly about welfare goods, not, not private goods, welfare goods for health, um, um, it, it really does genuinely make me boil with anger. Um, and the, the fact that we, we, we publicly can put people on the moon, but we can't think how to develop drugs publicly, is, yeah. is again, it's, 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 it doesn't bear any
2: critical scrutiny. It's interesting that, um, that Owen uses the example of space travel being entirely publicly funded. And yet now, privately funded space travel on the back of that may well commercialise space (laughs) in ways that we haven't anticipated. And my anxiety is, um, even with the best of collaborative public endeavour we still face the possibility that the commercial drivers and the national drivers will see a very distorted response if we are successful in getting the right vaccine identified.
0: For more on this theme, I highly recommend the Citations Needed podcast. Episode 110 sowed the seeds for some of my story, but every episode is provocative. I also want to share one final observation described in Nature Reviews Drug Discovery. In the 1950s, the rate of new drugs approved by the FDA per billion US dollars invested was over 50. These days that figure has dropped below 1, despite all the advances in technology and computing. Some of this will be due to more cautious safety and quality regulation, and the expectation of ever more targeted drugs, but the short-termism of corporate pharma and the many barriers to sharing of information also play a big part. Even Isaac Newton acknowledged that he had stood on the shoulders of giants, and he probably would have recognised the role of serendipity too. It's been estimated that a quarter of all drugs in use in 2012 were discovered by accident, and for chemotherapies it could be over a third. A conservative approach to early stage research will reduce the likelihood of such finds. Let me use this theme of chance and foresight as a tenuous segue to the second part of this episode. This comes from Associate Professor Adam Kamratz-Scott, who we heard from in episode 63, discussing the performance of the World Health Organization during the unfolding of the COVID pandemic. To assess whether the global community is up to the task of protecting public health in future, we have to consider whether COVID-19 really is as exceptional as some have made out. With a death toll of over a million people out of about 40 million known cases, this gives a case fatality rate of 2.5%, say. Compare this to SARS, which had a case fatality rate close to 15% from about 8,100 cases. The Middle East respiratory virus was even more lethal, with a CFR of 34%, but infected only around 2,500 people. A factor in the low transmission rate of these earlier coronaviruses is that people were already very sick by the time they were contagious. As a result, they'd be at home or in a hospital bed, and it's family members and health workers who were most at risk of infection. But many people infected with SARS-CoV-2 have minimal symptoms, so they continue to wander around town shedding virus unsuspectingly. So the two parameters of severity and transmission rate are to some extent inversely correlated and the atypical flus of recent years show how great a range they can span. Swine flu is estimated to have been transmitted to a fifth of the world's population and is now endemic, although it only causes death in 0.1% of cases. At the other extreme, the H5N1 avian influenza of 2004 had a terrifying case fatality rate of 60% from the 650 people infected over 10 years. The real question is whether a future mutant influenza or coronavirus will find a more catastrophic sweet spot of transmissibility and deadliness, and whether we will be any better prepared. Adam Kamrat Scott was involved in a couple of simulations in 2006 and 2008 to see how Australia's health sector and government coordination would respond to a flu pandemic. One weakness he has noted is that the Commonwealth serum laboratories were actually privatised 25 years ago not only does it now cost the government more to buy the seasonal flu vaccine, but it can lead to some conflicts of interest. 2009 saw a particularly bad influenza season on top of the swine flu, and vaccine production around the world was at capacity. The United States placed an order with CSL for 36 million doses of the swine flu vaccine, and it took some negotiation by the Australian government to guarantee that a portion of these would be kept at home before the US order was filled. After this interview was recorded, our Prime Minister committed $107 million towards assessing supply chain resilience issues of this nature. Other gaps are also being filled in quickly, but expensively, to resolve the cold chain transport issues for mRNA vaccines like Pfizer's, which can't be manufactured here and degrade quickly at temperatures higher than minus 70 degrees Celsius.
3: One of the big challenges that we faced, particularly after the 2009 pandemic, was this phenomenon uh, which is described as pandemic fatigue. And this emerged partly because uh, historically we've seen pandemics emerge every couple of decades. Uh, in 2005, the spread of H5N1, bird flu, uh, concerned a lot of people. There was a lot of investment then in put into strengthening global capacity and response. But then uh, swine flu hit, and it, so it wasn't bird flu. Um and everyone after that went, ah oh, we've, you know, we've been focusing on pandemic preparedness now for like solidly four or five years. We've had a pandemic. We don't have to worry about this for another like 20 odd years or more. And so, you know, we've seen people not paying attention to developing things like PPE stockpiles. And in fact, here in Australia, um, I have it on reasonably good authority that, you know, this, our national medical stockpiles were um, progressively whittled away, uh, which left us in the situation that we were in, whereby suddenly we're finding that we don't have enough masks, we don't have enough gloves, we don't have enough, you know, face shields and so forth. Um, now, that should never be allowed to happen ever again. You keep the, the national medical stockpile turning over so that all of the equipment is still safe and current, um, and we need to put in place those sorts of systems in the future so that we don't find ourselves in that sort of situation again. Um
0: which lessons from those simulations did fall into place effectively during COVID?
3: Broadly, the response has unfolded um, effectively as anticipated, really. Elements like the National Cabinet basically were an example of what we had already planned uh, Except back in uh, 2008, the mechanism by which the government would coordinate was the Council of Australian Governments. Um, And the only difference between COAG and the National Cabinet, basically, is that it has representation of local government. Um, And even the unfortunate... Situation with Victoria, you know, again, we kind of predicted that this could conceivably happen um, and then that government, state governments would respond in particular ways. And we used to joke about how... Uh, so back in 1918 when Spanish flu hit Australia to avoid the risk of anyone travelling from the east coast to the west coast and bringing Spanish flu with them, the WA authorities rolled boulders over the train tracks, which mm. was the only way that <laughs> you could get to WA other than boat. And as a result of the Western Australian authorities' measures, uh, the Australian Prime Minister at the time was in Perth and the Prime Minister then had to jump on a ship and sail around oh, right. the bottom of Australia to get back to Melbourne. Um, so, yes, there's a lot of similarities with the exercise scenario planning that we did in 2008 and what we're seeing now.
0: Mm. And there's the, the coordination between jurisdictions and, and federal government hasn't always been perfect. You've argued you're not the first person to advocate for an Australian Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, which of these pr- problems would could that resolve? So
3: it's a good question because obviously if you talk to the government and particularly the Department of Health, they'll maintain that actually what we've got is a virtual CDC and that's more than sufficient. The reality is, though, uh, that having a national CDC brings with it a synergy Um we probably would be able to much more readily and rapidly develop a definition of hotspots, for instance, um, which would then be have the weight of the Australian CDC behind it. Mm-hmm. And one of the benefits that the United States has is that they created the Public Health Commission Corps, which is under the Department of Health and Human Services, but they're a uniformed service. Mm. Uh, during peacetime, they provide healthcare services to the Indian reservation populations. But in a crisis, in an emergency, they are a force of people that can be rapidly mobilised and deployed. And in Australia, obviously, that would help right now with COVID Uh, in in Victoria. We wouldn't have to be relying on the Australian Defence Force. We would actually have a civilian-based, uniformed corps that would be able to go around, do the door knocking and so forth, and there's that immediate With ability. With the right expertise. Yes, well. yes, absolutely. Um, and obviously, you know, that could be then, that, that force could be moved and mobilised as necessary. So in the piece that we wrote for the conversation, we sort of made the case that, uh, you know, it should be based in Darwin. Hmm. Um, not only to help provide that uh, capacity, to Indigenous communities and re- rural and remote communities, but also by basing it up in Darwin, it then is much closer to the region if, mm. in the event that we need to deploy um, for a natural disaster or what, whichever, which is precisely why the OSMAT team capability is based up in Darwin now. Um, and it's basically just taking that OSMAT idea and expanding it. And if we're genuinely committed to bridging the gap in Indigenous healthcare, then a CDC and a... a commission called public health workforce would be one mechanism by which we could pursue that.
0: You referred to that 2018 inquiry into preparedness. Um, It resulted in a report titled Diseases Have No Borders. That's consistent with the core capacities of the IHR we've talked about. And the only one of the 15 recommendations of the report that was firmly rejected by the Department of Health was the request to simply assess the case for an Australian CDC. It was argued that a national framework is a better option and that um, and it doesn't confuse the responsibilities of state and federal governments. And yet confusion is exactly what we've seen now. I mean, you know, federal the border force and New South Wales Health, they've been blaming each other for, for the Ruby Princess debacle. Um, bizarrely, Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison have both encouraged people to disregard state border closures no without any sense of irony at all from these champions of border protection <laughs> would but do could an australian cdc have nationwide jurisdiction to make those kind of decisions and
3: so um we would need new legislation to give the cdc uh, that sort of authority and power but you know, again, because one of the big advantages that Australia has over many other federalised countries in the world is our Quarantine Act of 1908. There was some really forward thinking back then mm. about the need for a national coordinated response. You know, that capacity segues nicely into what we already have with the Australian Health Principles Protection Committee structures that sort of feed up. But the CDC and that public health corps would be the workforce to make it all happen. Um to my mind, it's it's a pretty straightforward case.
0: It all fits together. Yeah, mm.
3: but understandably, the politics around this has been what has it for so many years. I mean, again, one in a long line of people um, who have advocated for a CDC, um, the medical community and the Australian Public Health Association of Australia, they're all to be congratulated for it, but we still haven't been able to get our political leadership to listen to us.
0: That was Adam Kamrat-Scott ending this episode of Pomegranate Health. Thanks also to Peter Hill, Owen Williams and Deborah Gleason for their contributions. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. There's heaps more from these academics at the previous two episodes. You can subscribe to Pomegranate Health through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or any one of the many apps out there or listen directly at our website, racp.edu.au slash podcast. That's also where I've credited the fellows who gave me feedback on each episode and the musical composers that add so much to the production. You'll also find lots more reading material, which goes towards your CPD education. There's a link to logging your credits at the website. Please email any feedback and ideas to podcast at racp.edu.au or keep the conversation going at the comments section for each episode. I'm Mick Cavazzini. I hope to hear from you.